Podcast Studios. This, this is the award-winning After 9 with Scott and Kat. Powered by Tony Johal, broker at Remax Twin City. Your home sold guaranteed or he'll buy it. Happy motherfucking Turkey Day long weekend Friday. I know we have some American listeners, and hello, everyone. Uh, It's always hard for Americans to wrap their mind around the fact that we celebrate Thanksgiving in October. But if you are an American listening to this podcast, let me tell you, it's way fucking better this way. Get it done in October. There's nothing else going on until the end of the month anyway because of Halloween. This is a good one. Now, Dave joins us, as he does every Friday. And before we talk about the guest that's coming up, Dave. Mm Mm-hmm. What does a vegan eat on Thanksgiving? <laughs> you don't get asked this every single <laughs> A lot single of sweet year. potato? <laughs> you know, yeah, and I've been on a sweet potato kick the last little while, so I've had a sweet potato like every day this week, and now I'm going to probably eat three of them this weekend. Just before Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. right on time. Um, no, there's all kinds of options and, and things you can do and um, to fill yourself up. You don't have to eat just turkey um, or ham or whatever you're going to have for Thanksgiving. There's lots of options and all the other stuff that comes along with it, the stuffing and the potatoes and all that crap. That's, that's filling enough. Like how many of us really feel good after Thanksgiving dinner? Honestly. Yeah, oh, true. I feel great. Like <laughs> physically, I feel like an asshole, yeah. but mentally I feel fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. Cause you can go directly to the couch, lay down and just be like, I'm just going to let this just sit here and, and I'm going to look at my stomach every once in a while and I'm just going to be ashamed. But, Hey, football's on. It's when you do dumb shit like Google. How long does it take turkey to pass through your intestines? So you right. How much time you have? Yeah. How often do you, or sorry, my, my question should be, how quickly do you go for leftovers? What, like, is eating turkey dinner, say you eat at four o'clock in the afternoon, if you have more turkey at seven, is that leftovers or is that just another helping? That's sit out. That's sit outers. Those are the just the shit that's still sitting out. Yeah. Go back for. And when people are cleaning off the bones and stuff, I'm going to make turkey neck soup. And then the and then all that crap sits in your freezer for six months, oh. and you're like, oh, I forgot to just make soup. Stinking and just stinking. Just, it smells Not awful. Good. Yeah. So how how long is the the window of acceptability between second helping and now it becomes eating leftovers? Oh, there's no, you know what? We're blurring lines at this point, Mm. Dave. I mean, Mm. if you don't eat it while you're still at the table, you're eating leftovers. Oh, interesting. Okay. So Ah. that's the distinction. Okay. Mm. By the way, like turkey's not good. Like turkey's dry and pretty gross. Like the fact that you have to douse it in gravy, like isn't that enough for us to be like, maybe we shouldn't be eating this. It's dry and gross. I I don't like turkey at all. That said, though, I'll still put a little bit on my plate at Thanksgiving because I'm like, what else am I going to do? I have, you know, when I ate turkey, I loved it. I never had a dry turkey. I don't know. I just don't like it. It's a taste thing, too. I don't know. I like chicken. I, I, I do find turkey to be way different. Would you like a quail at Thanksgiving, perhaps? Like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> this weekend, Cat's going to be eating a duck. Yeah, yeah, a turducken for yeah. for Cat. Yeah, I don't know. Do you find turkey dry, Scott? Is it like no? Uh, no, I love turkey. It's uh, to me, turkey is better than chicken. We just don't have enough turkey eating occasions. So I look forward to Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. I mean. Really, there's like three times a year we do this. It takes forever to cook the goddamn thing, but I love it when it's there. Can we also normalize eating it any other time of the year? Let's normalize turkey in July. Yeah. Why not? You could do one of those great Monday night kind of meals in the middle of winter. Whatever. Take the day off work to cook it. (laughs) Can't come in today. Why is that? I'm making a turkey. Oh, (laughs) say less. That's all good. I got you. Make sure you don't skip the neck bun. You know what the neck bun is? What's a neck bun? I know. It's fucking gross. A neck bun? So the turkey did have a head at one point, for those that don't know. Oh. Right? So right at the line where they chop that head off, there's like a little little 
crest. It's like a little crispy little hoop there where where the where the neck began. <laughs> crispy little hoop. That's, huh? And and are you my, sure you're not looking at the circle, wrong end of the turkey? Yeah. No. Yeah. In, no. <laughs> in my circles, they call it the the neck bun. Because it comes out looking like a bit of like a crusty bun if you pull it out. You'll, oh. you'll see it now if you cook it right. Well, I and, guess I won't be having any dinner rolls I, at Thanksgiving know, now right? I'm thinking about the crusty it's bun. Gross. The first time I heard it, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And the guy's like, yeah, neck bun's mine, man. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I still don't know what it is. Is it skin? Is it meat? It's, it don't, uh, yeah. It's like, it's yes. Marrow? Bo- yes like to both. Everything? I don't know. I don't ask questions. I didn't try it. But that's what that's what some people call it is the neck bun. It's okay. Gross. So this weekend, everybody listening to the podcast, just as an experiment, at the table, call the neck bun. Neck yep. bun's mine and yep. see what happens. See if anybody responds, if they ask you to leave, uh, or if you actually get the neck bun. I'm curious to see if anybody neck will bun. actually go. Get the go fuck this. out of here. <laughs> Give me the neck bun. You what ever been thrown out of your parents' house? There you go. <laughs> what did you just say to me? I said the neck bun. You get the hell out of here. <laughs> you leave that bottle of wine and you get out. <laughs> uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, uh, yesterday, Dr. Kieran Moore came out with his guidance for all of us on how to have a happy yet safe Thanksgiving weekend. Suggestions we are able to gather with families and friends to celebrate Thanksgiving this year. First of all, that all health measures are followed host an in-person social gathering this year. Remember that under step three of the roadmap to reopen, you can have up to 25 people indoors and 100 people outdoors. But the fewer people who gather, the lower the risk of transmission. And outdoor gatherings are always safer, so use outdoor spaces whenever possible. When gathering outdoors with a group of fully vaccinated individuals, No face covering or physical distancing is necessary. But if you are gathering outdoors with people from multiple households who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, or their vaccination status is unknown, please consider wearing a face covering if physical distancing cannot be maintained. Just for clarity, he did say outdoor gatherings, you should wear a mask, right? Did he? No. Or did he not? He did not. I'm pretty sure he said outdoor gatherings. Let's hear that again. ...is necessary. But if you are gathering outdoors with people from multiple households who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, or their vaccination status is unknown, please consider wearing a face covering if physical distancing cannot be maintained. Yeah. Yeah. Just suck a dick. If you're not, you know, back, nobody's fucking doing that. No, but if you know, he he did say you can go mask off and no distancing if they're all if you're all vaxxed. So but we're outdoors, that? though. Isn't it an outdoor gathering? You can take off the face covering even if they're not. Fully well, this vaxxed? is just a stern suggestion. No yeah. one's listening to this shit. It's a recommendation, I think, yeah. more than anything. It's like, hey, if you don't know if people are vaxxed and and you're not yeah. sure, or if you know they're not, uh, we suggest you wear one. But, but it's outside. Yeah. But, but yeah, but that doesn't mean you lick each other. Like, I mean, we're talking hugging and really, really close contact yeah. with one another, right? And that's where you get the, I wouldn't do that either. If it was like multiple houses and I don't know who's vaxxed or who's not, I'd probably keep my distance too. I'm not going to hug everybody. I would just like to thank the pandemic for eliminating close talkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or that's, giving an excuse to stand away from them. That's maybe one of the benefits yeah. of, of COVID-19 is that we don't have any close talkers anymore. This is true. By the way, uh, Dr. Moore did carry on with that advice. And when 
gathering indoors with a group of fully vaccinated individuals, you could consider removing your face covering if everyone is comfortable. But if you gather indoors with people from multiple households who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, or you don't know whether they've been vaccinated, you should wear a face covering and physically distancing. And then he goes on to try and do it in French, but he butchered the shit out of it. <laughs> I like how you say he tried to do it in French. He did. He yeah. fucked it all up. He's like, uh, le, le, le COVID-19, uh, 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 Turkey, bonjour, uh, uh, la, la pupitre, uh, uh, un stylo, uh, puis j'allais à la salle de bain, uh, uh, les Canadiens de Montréal. Bonne nuit. <laughs> Et bu. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he, uh jesus 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 um okay yesterday i uh i i just said you know enough's enough so I, I put it out there on twitter and and i said it was wrong what happened in windsor yesterday they fired 57 hospital staff from one hospital 57 of them fired in one day because they're not up to date on vaccinations if you want to see the thread you can and there's a whole mixed bag of reactions to that uh, as we've said before, I, I don't want to see anybody lose their job over this, and I certainly don't think we're in any position to be firing any hospital staff right now. Uh, there, it seems like there's more that could have been done to try and and get them to get vaccinated. Firing 57 people in one day, less than 80 days before Christmas. That's crazy to me. But like I said, that's on Twitter, and we're not going to get too much into the weeds on that because there's a lot of other things to talk about. Coming up in a few minutes, we've got a special guest, Giovanni. Let me see if I got this right. Uh, Giovanni, what's his last name here? You have your uh, email there handy, Dave? Oh, Giovanni Rocco is a New Jersey police officer. He was the agent at the center of Operation Charlie Horse that tried to take down the crime family that The Sopranos is based off of. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. Careful. Careful. Whoa. I'm going to duck out and, and go pee while you guys do that, okay? This I, conversation, I, I want no, no part of Kat, this. I want this, no part of what you guys are going to uncover here. This conversation will be conducted with the, the utmost respect, <laughs> respectful questions. For good uh, business people. Yes. Yeah. Hardworking business people. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing to ask about nefarious activities because we know that there aren't any. Obviously. I mean, I'm people who contribute a lot to their neighborhoods and uh, they're into waste management. They're entrepreneurs. Yeah, I'm ready to challenge this guy altogether and say, how dare you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why would you harass that nice family? Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Uh, I think he's calling in in a few minutes. So whatever we're talking about at the time, we might break to talk to, to Rocco when he calls in. He does have a book out, by the way, and we'll talk about that when we've got him on the line. Adele is already warning that when her new song comes out next Friday, some relationships are going to end. Oh, boy. Oh, I believe boy. her when she says that, by the way. Like yeah. when she says, women, you may just look at your partner and say, I'm done. And I believe that might happen. <laughs> Adele has just got that power in her voice and in her songs that, yeah, maybe that's when you say, I don't even fucking like this guy that much. You know what? You're <laughs> drop me off there, right here. Can there ever be that much that much power in a song? And I'm actually asking. Oh hell I'm, yes! I'm just asking the question. So, so you truly believe that there's going to be people listening to this that pick up on whatever issue she had in her relationship with her ex husband now, 
that makes someone else go, yes, I am better than you. Fuck you. Yeah, I think there's going to be people who uh, react to music the way people have always reacted to music. And sometimes an artist can say what we're thinking better than we ever could say it. Uh-huh. And that's kind of what happens. Remember, never mind, I'll find someone like you. Oh, and that just hits you right in the feels. I don't mind... I'm not even in a bad relationship. You know, I'm not even sad. I'm I, just like, yeah. oh, this is awful. I feel that. Let me give you a quote from uh, UK Vogue here. Can you imagine couples listening to the song about my divorce in the car? It's going to be awkward. I think a lot of women will look to their spouse and be like, I'm done. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. No, no, no. You have to listen to it with your spouse. Because you have to play defense. You have to play damage control. You can't let her drive by herself in the rain driving in her new car, you know, just speeding down the street and, and listening to Adele and thinking, yeah, you know what? I would be better off without this guy. You need to be able to say, oh, I'm not like that. No, there's two sides to every story. Yeah. Let's just keep that in mind. Yeah. yeah. It takes I'm, two people to fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, don't, don't let her listen to it by herself. That's, that's yeah, basically you're fucking the crazy if you leave your girl unsupervised listening to an Adele record. What's wrong with you? You better be there at midnight next Friday then. Well, that is just irresponsible it, to leave her to listen to it by herself. That's yeah. irresponsible. It means, you, it means you don't care. Maybe she should dump your ass because you left her alone listening to a fucking Adele record. You never should have done that. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Old uh, friend, why are you so sad? Like, oh, don't remind her. She's not sad. <laughs> Come on. And by the way, I, I just want to say this with, with all earnesty here. I fucking love Adele. Me too. She's great. I'm a yeah, huge fan great. of Adele. She is so good. And I'm so excited for this new album. I just don't want my wife to hear it. <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you possibly block her from hearing the well, song? You know what? Being working in the music world, I'll just say, yeah, it's so weird. Like she, she said she was putting it out and then didn't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all these reviews say it's out, but it's actually an old album that you've already heard a hundred times. There's no yeah. reason to listen to it now. Or, you know what? It's no. It's just about a, a, a girl that loves her, her man, and hey. that's all it's about. It's really nice. You know what's really good? Outcast. Like, <laughs> let's, let's listen to Outcast. <laughs> that's that's, that's going to be my plan next week. Perfect. Uh, Tinder has teamed up with Lyft to do exactly that. Send a Lyft for your date. So now, when you've gone through and you've arranged your little fucking dirty hookup, you can send a car to pick them up and bring them to your place or to wherever it is that you guys have agreed to meet. That's a and great they, idea. Yeah. Well, they say there's security features in place so that you never actually know the other person's address. They just get an invite or a link that says such and such has sent a car for you. Enter your location here. And that person never gets to know your location unless w- you choose to tell them. Yeah, I, like I will that. say that I was worried you were going to say Tinder has teamed up with Adele. Oh, fuck. It's like no one is ever going to be in a relationship ever again. Tinder would be like, no, this is not a good idea. This is not a partnership we want to be part of. (laughs) I like this Lyft idea, though, because if Lyft is a reputable company and they're going to get people from A to B, that's kind of nice. And the safety safety part, that's the thing, right? The safety part is it's a big deal, especially if you're going on a date with someone that you only know through messaging on on Tinder. There's a lot of, you know, stereotypes surrounding that or people just nervous from the get go. So knowing that that's there for you, that's good. Uh, (laughs) scientists say they have figured out why women are always cold. 
Why is that, Cat? Why do you think women are always cold? Before I tell you about the evolutionary reason for it, I, uh, you know, it's I don't, I wouldn't have been able to tell you a proper scientific reason why, uh-huh. but but it's I, true. It's I know it's one hundred percent true. And f- like my husband is like a, it's he's just a heat lamp, and I love it. I'm just like all well, men are. Yeah, and that's why you know that's why we probably get along so well. Is my feet are always Antarctica, and I'm always freezing. And for whatever reason, it always seems like men are always warm, hot, and then girls are always cold. I don't, you don't put can, your cold feet on him. Yeah, you, that's disrespectful. That's rude. That's he rude. likes it. Okay. Mm. No. He doesn't fucking like it. <laughs> he wants to get laid later. That's what happy yes, wife, happy does. life, even if he has to suffer with your cold feet on him. Yes. You know, it's, it's worth the, it. The worst is when one's cold, one's really warm, and then the cold person wants to cuddle or snuggle and, and eat up warmth, and you're like, I'm already boiling hot. Why are yeah. you hugging me? Like, fuck it, off. You're making it worse. Well, that's why you should enjoy the cold, the cold hands and feet. Uh, yeah, well, listen, it's yeah. <laughs> honestly we're before I tell you the reasons for this. <laughs> Women are like a raccoon trying to get into a trash can. They're just all paws trying to touch you and get you to fucking warm them up. Listen, it's not our problem that you're cold-blooded somewhat. So the reason for this, according to this scientist. We've got a call coming in here, by the way. Oh, oh, do we? Okay. We'll try and come back to why women are cold. Let's do that. Basically, it's evolutionary. Okay. Let's go ahead and answer this call. Let's answer this call. And Kat's not here if they ask. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, this is the After 9 Podcast. Hey, how are you? It's Giovanni Rocco. Hey, Giovanni, how are you? Good. Is this Scott? Scott, Kat, and Dave are all here, and we're glad that you are now, too, because we are dying to talk to you. Hey, guys. Good morning. How are you? We're great. Thank you. You're in what, New Jersey right now? No, no, I can't go to Jersey. I'd be dead if I go to Jersey. Oh. Ah, good. I'm, in oh. I'm in an undisclosed location. So you're actually in a protection program? Is that what you would call it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not in a protection program. Uh, you know, working for the government, I know how good a protection program works, so I, I didn't uh, opt in for that. But I have several means of security that are put in place for me. And my- so let me let me ask you if this is similar to another show then, similar to like Breaking Bad when uh, Walter White's character needed to disappear. Are there private businesses that can make that happen? Yes. All that wow. stuff is in place. All that tradecraft is there, and you can disappear like you never existed. Wow. Whoa. I want to but talk do you about want to Gio- your kids to that. Say that again. Would you want to subject your kids to that? Absolutely. That was my dilemma. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. So, for those who aren't familiar, you have a book out, and it talks about how you were involved i guess in a way with the crime family that the sopranos the old tv show from hbo was based on first off the many saints of newark is out and this is basically a prequel to what everybody saw on the hbo series and your book goes so in depth on this i've read a couple of excerpts and i gotta tell you it's fascinating giovanni's ring my life inside the real sopranos tell us how you got assigned to that case um, well, I was working undercover for most of my career. I'm a city cop, and then I became a uh, task force officer with the feds, first the DEA and then the FBI. And then I was deputized with the government, and I was a federal employee for the government and undercover for them. Um, later in my career, I, like I said, I did 26 years of service in law enforcement. Probably 24 or 25 of those were dedicated to working undercover. Um, I worked street crimes in the beginning and then worked my way in that way through narcotics, worked my way into bigger cases in the DEA, and then ultimately... 
I started working federal level, international level cases, um, and then for the bureau, that was when it really that that when that's when it became the major leagues, and that's what I referred to it as. You- and uh, from that point on, it was just you know I showed up for a drug deal one night, and it just morphed into because of my persona and who I am, it, it morphed into three years of me being in the uh, La Cosa Nostra. Wow, that is intense. Did you at any point? Um, Sign an ND. I just feel like anything involving that, you would have an NDA in place or something like that. Did you at one point, or do you currently have any NDAs in place for when you did work for them? Uh, with the government, you mean? Yes. Oh, my God. It was a nightmare, Kat. Um, and again, it was to protect everything that the government does in tradecraft, which I would never give up because my brothers and sisters are still doing this work today. Okay. But, um, yeah, when I wrote the book and I, I, I completed the, uh, the manuscript, I myself reached out to them because I didn't want to break any rules. Not that I was afraid to get in trouble, but I didn't, didn't want to give any trade craft up. So yeah. they went through it with a fine tooth comb, um, and they they authorized it to be released. You know, there was there was a lot taken out. I probably lost a hundred pages out of the original manuscript. Wow, that's what I was wondering. They wanted to take it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hopefully so- it'll be a, uh, a reprint. The um, the Sopranos that we saw on TV is based on a family called is it the Di Cavalcante family? Yeah, perfect. De and what was your role with the De Cavalcante family and their day to day activities? What was your day like when you were on this case, but trying to to infiltrate them? Yeah, well, I didn't try to infiltrate them. They kind of laid the roadmap for me. I came in with some low hanging fruit, doing some narcotics deals. Um, with some knock-around guys, which are like low-level associates. Then you get the attention of the, the made guys and the, the guys who can bring you up further up the chain. And it's just they saw me, they saw my persona, and they just wandered in. They, the greed got the better of them. Uh, they saw I was making money, and I could make money in the street with people. I was in there, I was making money with the wrong people, so they, they took a hold of me. And then if you can imagine, everybody wants you on their team because you're a moneymaker. So different. Uh-oh. Are you there Uh-oh. still? We lost him. They, did, oh, they didn't get his line, did they? Oh, shit. fuck. That's the first thing I thought. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought. Okay, maybe he'll give us a call back. Wow, I am intrigued. Yeah, yeah I'm right fucking into this right Dang. now. Uh, remind me, Dave, because Dave and I used to discuss The Sopranos every Monday. It aired Sunday night. We talked about it on Monday. Yeah. And... Like, is there really a Polly? Is there really a big pussy? Is yeah. there really a Tony Soprano in the sense that we know Tony Soprano? Oh, my what God. Re- these are great questions. I need to know this information. I want to yeah. know how close he got to, like, extended family members. And, you know, are there Meadow Sopranos who are, you know, on the fringe and on the outside of it? And, you know, do you feel bad for them and their unfortunate connection to it, things like that. Like I'm intrigued. I'm and so intrigued by this. How did he have a family? How did he have a family and do that? Now, I don't know if this was, see, this is why we need him back on. What happened? I what hope happened so. to his what phone happened? line? All right. Well, we'll that's, that's a weird fucking coincidence that here, is right? Weird. Like, I'm not crazy. That's a little fucked up. No, that's fucked up. That his line goes dead in the middle of when he's just about to start talking about the Di Cavalcante family. We have no contact number for him, do we, Scott? No, I, of course he was not. calling us. Yeah. And I didn't, well, we can't call him. He's off the grid. Well, he's yeah. off the grid. He's like totally fucking in hiding. Well, he knows our number. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get him back, but I hope so. He's in like it, a it, tin cabin on some like private property somewhere so that we can trace his call. Like, is oh, there people out there? Oh, wait. Oh, here we go. Okay, good. Okay. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, Giovanni. Yeah, hello, oh, you guys. oh yes. Okay, well, we were worried really, about you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we thought shit went down. <laughs> no, hey, here I was. Are, I was rambling on and on and on, and I paused. And, okay, I guess they didn't like that story. <laughs> we did. We, yeah, we're intrigued. I was right into it. So right, into where, it. Where'd you lose me? Okay, so we were talking about how you got involved and what your day-to-day was like, and you were talking about how the maid guys could see that you were an earner and they wanted you on their team. Right, and then came Charlie Stango. He was a longtime old-school gangster. This guy, when I met him, was 72 to 72 years old. Um, Old school, lived the life, had a lot of respect across the country and internationally. He was an old-school gangster. Uh, Hitman, just, you know, he had done time for murder and he was just being paroled for murder. And uh, when he came out, he knew I was making money. I was connected at the time to his nephew. So he just came in and swooped me up, and that was that. I explained in the book how that all happened. But eventually, I came to report to him. And on a daily basis, I became his, uh, I guess, the son that he always wanted, I I refer to it as, quickly to understand it. He he just, I grew a love for him. He grew a love for me. Uh, It was a, a personal relationship and a criminal relationship we had. To the point where he was sending me to the other five families with messages if there was a job that could be done. And then eventually he just put me in charge of his own crew. And uh, his, his crew, he built it around me. Guys started reporting to me. And one of those guys in particular was his son, Anthony. So he had his son, Anthony, reporting to me, which was uh, that when in my world, that was even more complicated. So Tony that, reported to you. That's what that sounds like to me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's yeah. wild. Yeah, it was, you know. So now you're living this life of treachery, and is this kid going to be jealous? Is this kid, you know, because he fought for his father's love. His father was in prison most of his life. This kid is a young kid. Right. So, you know, um, so I had to be aware of that every day. Now, and eventually you, it just came to the point where I committed crimes on his behalf, and I kicked up to him. Wow. You had to, what was the average kick up like? Like, if you go out and do a drug deal or something like that, let's say you, you make 500 bucks. How much do you have to kick up when you're in that scenario? Well, it depends. It, sometimes it's a test. You know, listen, uh, you're going to go out and do something, Dave and Scott, you know, kick a little bit up to me. And then if you scored 10 grand and you only kick 500 to me, that's insulting. Mm. You know, if I find out you scored 10 grand, so it's almost like, mm, you know, let me see what he's going to give me. You know, in the beginning, it was he didn't even ask for money. It was when, it wasn't until he trusted me. And in the beginning, it was, hey, listen, Giovanni, make him. So you, you got to have like balls there, of right? You live a good yeah. life, right? You and your girlfriend are having a good time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, do me a favor. Send me a car payment every month. What's that? Wow. You, so you got It's just amazing to hear this, right? Because we watched The Sopranos. We watched, you know, the movies like Donnie Brasco and, and movies about the families. And the way you're describing it, it seems like a lot of these shows and movies got a lot of the details right. Like the, the guy you're describing who came out of prison and he, he spent time for murder. He sounds like Pauly. From the Sopranos. Oh, yeah. yeah, very much, very much so. These guys were, I could tell you from the life of the Sopranos and the the Cavacantes, uh, even the day I went on record with the family when I met the bosses, I met the bosses in the real life pork store in Elizabeth, New Jersey. No so shit. I wow. Went on to what was, yeah, yeah, it was a setting of the Sopranos. It literally, you know, I grew up in this stuff. I grew up in this, not in the life of La Costa Nostra, but I was around it all the time. 
So I was familiar with it. But now here I am as a young kid watching it. Now I'm walking into it. That was crazy. The day I went on record and my boss is standing out there waiting to introduce me to the boss of bosses. That was insane. And, yeah. you know, here I was being introduced and I'm looking past the street boss and he's talking to me. Oh, Giovanni Gatto, nice to meet you. And I'm looking past him and on the wall, there's a bone saw, there's a meat saw, there's a cleaver. And I'm going, these guys are going to drag Holy me into the basement. And touch me. Did you, it's, not out of the, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. Did you have a family at this point, Giovanni? I did. Yeah, I did. I had a wife and a kid back home. Oh how did that, how did that work? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out well, how your wife felt at the time and, and how much, I mean, obviously your kids, I'm assuming, knew nothing. Do they know now and how, and, and do you talk about it openly? Um, we don't talk about it openly because some of my kids are younger to the point where they don't understand it. Um, but there's a lot of anger because one day we lived in this beautiful house, a Tony, Tony Soprano West home we lived in in New Jersey, and we had the, our, you know, our forever home. And then the next thing you know, here we go, we're gone. We just packed the bag and we were gone. And for years, my kids asked, and they held it against me. You know, you took our house away, you took this away, you took that away. Why? 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 You tell me when I get older, you're going to tell me. But there was a lot of pain. We get through it. My life, my wife was in law enforcement, so that helped a, okay. a little bit. Yeah. Have you had Did to prep yourself for that conversation, though, with your kids? Yeah, we do. Yeah, my, my daughter, when she was smaller, she actually came home with a book, uh, a summer read, and she got to pick it, and it was odd that the book was called um, Greetings from Witness Protection, and it was a little kid's book. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, you going to say that? Why would you pick that Why would this book? You know? Eventually, she came out of her room and asked, are we in Witness Protection? Wow. They figure it out. Did you ever get made? No, I was, I was due to – they talked about making me um, – if I would have did the hit, so I was sanctioned to kill a made guy in the family. Um, there was a, there was a war brewing in the family and some divide came across. And then one of the guys that I was dealing with early on who tried to claim me for his, he lost that battle. So he, he had a lot of bad blood, but then some things that happened internally with the administration, the bosses of the family. And then, uh, you know, I capped him one night and, and you know, we were sitting in dinner in Atlantic, uh, Las Vegas when I was living out there that way with him because he lived in Nevada. And he said, yeah, they were going to kill this guy, and you're going to do it. So what do you say to that? You know, Is it that blunt? Give me time. Very blunt. Well, he explained it. We went through this whole big, you know, he told me what the problems were in the family at that point. And I had the inner workings. I knew how the family worked. I knew what the administration was thinking. He shared everything with me. So when he shared it with me, uh, and I agreed with him, and I said, yeah, you know, I understand, I understand. And he goes, well, we need a problem. And then he said to me, you know what? You are the problem. And at first, I took it as, why am I the problem? Uh-oh. No, listen to me. You're the problem. You're going to do this. You're going to do it. I'm going to bring it to the administration. I'm going to propose that you do it. And then, and then eventually, I, I got a couple of uh, other undercovers to help me with it. They were outlaw biker types. They looked like some you know, outlaws and big long beards, the biker guys. And my buddy Dutch and, and my other buddy came in, and, and they helped me seal the deal. Because you've got to make it look real. Right. Did you, I mean, it's got to be weird for you because you were a cop, but you had to hunt a hundred percent commit to this. Otherwise it wasn't going to be believable. So you as a cop with a sworn oath to uphold the law and the constitution probably had to commit some serious crimes. I didn't have to commit serious crimes. So again, because of tradecraft reasons, the government gives us criminal authority. We can, I can't go around and smash somebody's head in, or I can, you know, I can't threaten somebody and victimize people, but there's a certain amount of crime we can commit. So they, they allow that. It's called criminal authority. Wow. So once they give us the criminal authority, we can do certain things. And then as a polished, seasoned, undercover, 
I was trained for this later in my career. In the beginning, I made a lot of mistakes. I was, I'm lucky I still have my head attached yeah. to some of the mistakes mm-hmm. I made. Well, but in- later in my career, what's that? No, go ahead. Sorry, continue. No, so later in my career, you know, I started, I started, you can manipulate things. It's the art of deception. And when you're truly, truly trained in the art of deception, and it's a mind game, you can get people to do what you want. It's amazing. You know, we're trained to the point where I can make you sit in whatever chair I want you to. It's like being a director of a movie. Damn. Wow. Are there people looking for you? Oh, I don't Still? know. Let me know if you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's been a long time. And, and that's why I'm wondering, like, are you still looking over your shoulder when you walk down the street? I look over my shoulder every day. I always have. You know, I looked over my shoulder when I was a young investigator and a homicide detective because I put some people in jail. I did a lot of cartel work early in my career. I did Colombian cartels when they were at their peak of their, you know, early 90s. I, I started this job in 1990. So the Cubans and Colombians ran everything. And, uh, you know, we took a lot of money from people and, and put a lot of people in jail. But those are the guys I worried about early on. So I've always had my head on a swivel. Guys I put in for murder, when they get out, you know, they lived amongst me. I, I bumped into guys I grew up with that I put in for murder. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because as you're growing up in this kind of environment, you had to run into people that knew you were working to become a police officer or something like that. That, that had to have happened at some point where somebody knew who you were. Did, did you ever worry that you were going to be made because of that, that somebody was going to catch on and be like, and just even in conversation, be like, oh, yeah, I remember he was going to police academy or something like that along the way. Like, would you ever worry about a simple slip up like that? I did worry, but early in my career, I, I was in patrol as a young cop for nine months. And then they asked me to do some undercover work and be into narcotics and major case. And I, I actually worked organized crime vice back in the day um, in old New York times when they had bookies and stuff like that. Uh, the traditional ones. Huh. So I worked those cases. And, and real quick, when I got my gold shield, I grew my beard really long. I became an outlaw biker. That was my persona <laughs> early in my career of undercover work. So I grew the beard. I had earrings. I had long hair. I drove motorcycles. I, that was my persona. So for me to bump into you, you'd really have to look at me and, and remember me. Oh, wow. Um, um, what? So And then even, even later on, I had my partner for 10 years. He didn't know I was, I was relocated, and I left. He didn't know where I was for years until I was able to touch base with him and tell him. And he's actually my, my daughter's godfather. Oh, my God. Jeez. When yeah. The I Sopranos came to TV as a concept, this was from David Chase. Were you ever consulted on the story or on how this should roll out or the authenticity of the characters? No, no. I always wanted to go, like, again, being a Jersey guy and when The Sopranos was being filmed, everybody had hooks to go on a set and get their pictures with everybody. But I couldn't do that. I was working deep cover at that point. So... I couldn't even go and, and make myself available. I have worked on TV shows and I have done movies in the past consulting early in my career, but uh, I never, I was never asked to do anything like that. If, if you could do it all again, would you do anything differently? Oh man, I got it. I, I don't know about that. I don't know because I still have my head attached cat. So for me to, <laughs> That's a good. That's a good day. That's the way I look at it, and I usually ask that question if people say, "Would you do it again?" Yeah, because it made me the man I am today. It made me the father I am. I'm Mm -hmm. very grateful to have my wife, who still stands by me, and my family, and my kids, and you know, it it made me who I was. As a young kid, I probably should not have lived past 25. I should have been dead or in jail. I was running around in the streets doing stupid things. So, for me to become a cop, let alone an FBI undercover. I'm blessed to have the life I have, so I probably wouldn't change anything. Did you ever get arrested doing any of the things you were doing and then eventually have to explain, uh, listen, I'm, I'm undercover here? No, I didn't get arrested. Uh, a couple. Well, I've been arrested. I've been arrested on cases that are taped, um, which has been 
very uh, nerve-wracking because you know you're going to get arrested. And then I have new agents or new cops in the street, and you go over it and say, listen, when you come down for the takedown and you come into the, you know, into the set, don't point your gun at me. Point your gun at everybody else. And well, who they point the gun at? They always pointed at me. And, you know, that's the worst thing, seeing a young cop running to you with his finger on the trigger running towards you. Um, that's the times I thought I was going to get clipped doing undercover work. So I've been arrested. I've been, I put cops in jail. That, that's a hard thing. I put cops in jail. I paid cops to use their, their badges and their guns and their authority to commit crimes for who they thought was a gangster. You know, where did the bulk of the D where did the bulk of the D Cavalcante family's money come from? Well, over the years, John Riggy was the boss. He was older getting out of, uh, he was getting out of the family. He was going to retire in his nineties. I would say a lot of the bulk of the work for the, the was union work, union contract work. They had a lot of uh, construction work. They had ties into the docks and in the ports of Newark and Elizabeth. So that's where a bulk of their money comes from. Contracts, union jobs, uh, bids on jobs, construction and road jobs. That was a majority of it over the years, traditionally. And, uh, you, you would know, actually be hanging fruit. They do bookmaking, gambling, loan sharking. Huh? Interesting. So it's very, I, I, I'm guessing from what you're saying and what we saw on the series and what we may see in the movie this weekend, uh, cause I'm going to go tomorrow is I guess the series was pretty true to life in what actually happened. Very much so. Yeah. You watched it. I watched it before I was in the mob. Like this, my first mafia case that I worked, this was the most in-depth one I, I ever infiltrated. But we used to chuckle. You know, even as a cop, we used to laugh in my neighborhood and my family would watch The Sopranos because you knew somebody. I knew somebody from my family or somebody from the neighborhood and go, oh, that's so-and-so. You know, Bully Walnuts was the best. You know, I got guys in my family that remind me of the, the characters in The Sopranos sometimes. We had dinner with him one night and we were... Like he became Polly, and we were just like, "Is this an actor or is this Polly?" Like this was, it was intense. And so you're around these characters all the time. Did you ever worry about slipping up? I didn't because I was me. I just changed my name. I didn't, ch- and I didn't change my persona. Um, and Tony Sirico, who plays Polly Walnuts, I could, I can empathize with him because it's almost a defense mechanism. Even to this day, I become Ivani Gatto if I'm in an uncomfortable situation. You know, I, I don't try to be a character. It's just your persona and what you, you know, you are and what you let off. So sometimes if I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I'll become more of a, I'll turn it up to 12, you know, uh, and kind of like Paulie Wallace did, right? He'll take the room over and get loud, get, you know, boisterous and jokingly. Yeah. But I never tried to be somebody I couldn't be. I was always myself, which caused me some grief because they said, you walk like us, you talk like us, but where the hell did you come from, you know? There's a lot of questions and fiery hoops I had to get through. Yeah, you must All have had bad. a backstory. That's unreal. Wow. Oh, can yeah, I ask you that you create? Can I ask you a question that I've always wondered from watching that series? Sure. Why is it that if they did a hit or if they whacked somebody, they always left the gun? They never took the gun. They never tried to hide the gun. They left the gun there. Why would a gangster do that? I don't know. That's a stupid gangster. <laughs> I thought so too. Not I thought, real life. The fuck are you leaving the gun? Yeah. No, it's that's stupid. That's dumb shit. I mean, I don't think I ever met a guy that clipped somebody and left a gun there. You know, that was you always took it. They always took it with them. You know, uh, I got great stories that go on and on with what they did with the guns and how to get caught not getting rid of the guns. You know, they saved the guns for another hit. How stupid is that? You know, so it depends on a gangster. 
you know, old school, I guess in the 30s and, you know, the lucky Luciano days, they lived, leave the gun behind because there wasn't DNA. There wasn't that many yeah. you know, fingerprints. Weren't, uh, wasn't what it is today, but wow. I, and, I mean, you were I would, never, I wouldn't leave one behind. You were never made, but was there ever a point where you were worried that you'd be tested? And I ask because, you know, anytime you see movies like that, that depict these types of characters and scenarios, you see someone who maybe they're unsure of. So they test them with a crime. Like you mentioned, you're allowed to get away with a lot of things. You wouldn't have been allowed to get away with shooting someone in the head. Did that fear ever, ever cross your mind or had you ever seen anyone else get tested? Does that happen? Uh, nobody gets tested. I mean, if you did, you know, there's, there's tradecraft that you do to, to out yourself and you're never going to kill somebody. You know, you're never going to do drugs. You're always going to, you're trained. You're trained to get, talk your way out of these things. Okay. You, you start running your mouth, you start talking, you start building gratiation, you start, you know, there's all these things you do. And, and when it comes down to it, you just, you just got to hope your tradecraft is, tradecraft and you know what you're doing you know the art of manipulation why why wouldn't i shoot this kind of head you have to talk it down oh wow but i've been tested i've been tested many many times not to kill somebody but you know again they knew i had a criminal history you know there were leaks of law enforcement and i did truly have a criminal history uh, a persona that i had and i was arrested for murder attempted murder and you know they knew that They, they they had somebody run my record my criminal history so they knew i was a serious guy So that played a part into it, too. Whatever happened to the DiCavalcante family? I'm assuming there's still survivors of that family around today. They can't all be in jail. No, they're not all in jail. I mean, they grow back. It's just like trimming a tree. You know, you just have to keep it under control. It's just like any criminal organization. It doesn't matter what it is or what what, what culture it's from. You just got to keep chopping at it and trim it back and, and try to control it so it doesn't grow on you like a wild weed. So what? what um, so you take shots at it, and they grow back. What's the yeah? What's the goal then when you go in? Is it to try to uproot the tree, or is it to just trim it back to a manageable level? Yeah, you try to uproot it. You want to go to the administration level, the bosses, and try to take it down there because it's harder for them to reorganize. Yeah. They're going to take longer, and the trust has to be there with these guys. And a lot of these guys today turn rats, and everybody says, "Oh, Sammy the Bull was the first. Sammy the Bull was a stand-up guy for what he did with with." with John Lee and, and burning on him the way he did when gangsters, true gangsters look at him and they don't hate him for being a rat because he wasn't a rat. The boss made him do that. So there's, there's been rats since the thirties. There's been, you know, everybody says, Oh, the, the, the mob isn't what it is because everybody rats on each other. They've all been ratting on each other for, since the day of its inception. They've been turning on each other. It's just that they do it now to, to, to run to the courts to get a faster plea deal, you know, but Charlie, my guy was a gangster, gangster. The day he was locked up, you know, he took his morning dump in, in the lockup and didn't flush the toilet. And he told the federal agents, see that? That's what I think of the federal government. Now bring me to jail. Wow. Holy shit. So that's the, you don't get many guys like Charlie, you know? Yeah. Not many guys. Um, okay, so in the series, we saw Big Pussy. Big Pussy was an undercover informant. He was somebody that law enforcement convinced you'll go to jail or you can turn and give us some info and that'll help you out in the long run. So he was essentially a snitch. Now, you also being law enforcement, would you have known that there was also somebody else on the inside? Or did you have any idea that they had other people in on this? Well, it's funny you ask that, right? Because if it was an FBI informant, maybe I would know. The FBI would tell me, what if it was a DEA informant and they haven't shared information? Because agencies, they get mad at each other and they get jealous. They all want to be the ones to to put the, the nail in a coffin on these organizations. So sometimes they're supposed to share the information, but sometimes it slips through. And... uh 
Yeah, I actually have had, I went meeting in Las Vegas one time and I walked in and there was a guy that I had met in a hotel room as an, as an, uh, law enforcement agent and they flipped him and he informant and he knew who I was and he came out and he goes, you know, we went to the bathroom together and he's like, what are you doing here? Holy you know? shit. Oh, and then I said, you, you might want to just get on a flight and go home. You know? Wow. Which he did. Oh yeah, my so, God. <laughs> and, and, and what would have happened? How immediate would the response be if they found out what you were up to? Would would they just pull out a gun and clip you? Or is there going to be well, some planning? Is it methodical? No. So in my case, and I wrote about it in a book, it's uh, you take Luigi, for example. Um, he thought I might have been ratting. He thought I might have been uh, wearing a wire. And some things happened in a book and surveillance got followed back and some other things to really set his bells and whistles off. And uh, he came to me and he, he, he confronted me on it. And he preambled it by saying, listen, you're a rat and you're wearing a wire. I'll chop you up in a piece, you know, but I'm just letting you know, not that are you a cop? He didn't think I was a cop. It's better to be thought of as a cop because maybe they won't kill a cop. They most likely will. They don't care. Some of these guys are gangsters and cowboys, but you don't want to be looked at as a rat because a rat, they just impulsively put two behind your ear and you're done. You know, you won't even know it. So, and with me, I was an associate. I was a guy. So it's easier. Anybody could have clipped me. I actually had lunch with a guy that had done some work and he said to me, yeah, Giovanni, you know, I've been on the other side of the gun and, you know, you never know when it's going to happen. You just got to hope we don't take two to the head and, you know, hopefully all these meetings go well and we make money and everything is nice. So all these people are doing undercover work. Uh, how much of the uh, the crime is infiltrated by people undercover? Is there is like is there a percentage? Is there just th- that basically every ring that's got something going on has somebody in it? No, no, it's just uh, it's minimal. Where the undercover technique is something that you pull out of your toolbox when you've used and exhausted all the other means. You know, you, you're going to do wiretaps. You're going to try to use informants, and undercover is the last technique because it's such a tremendous asset and and a, and a tradecraft that you don't want to just on every case you're doing so yeah you'd have to prove fiery hoops to, to get an undercover and undercover off the ground one of the things that that was an underlying theme in the sopranos was the relationship between the new jersey mob and the new york mob mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things how connected was this decavalcante family to break it down fast, just like you saw in the series, exactly like you saw in the series. My captain spoke to the guys in New York. My captain met with the representative of the Gambinos and explained to he first he explained to me and vetted me out through the Gambino guys. He vetted me out through the bosses and the administration uh, on the Jersey side. And then he later on had the trust in me to explain to me, yeah, this is how our family operates. We operate on our own independently, but ultimately we're under the umbrella of the Gambinos and the protection of the Gambinos. So in case they had to go to war, I guess they tap into another. It's kind of like the U.S. and their allies around the globe. You know, they're going to use their allies. So everything we did um, was overseen. Maybe not everything was approved by the Gambinos, but it was shared what we were doing. If we went to war with each other internally, they would know about it. And they they knew everything we were doing. Wow. What do you do now? How do you make money? Or is the government taking care of you forever so you don't have to, to come off the or get back on the grid? <laughs> Tell us your job and where you work. <laughs> no, but I'm wondering, like, just location. give me an industry. Like, is he working at 7-Eleven or is he still a cop? 15. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh, no, so what I did was for the longest time after I left, I tried to put my life back together. 
And that's pretty much what they told me, just take the time and put your family back together. And, and they gave me some time. I prepared to go to trial because I figured this was going to be lengthy trials and organized crime usually is because they hire the heavy hitters, but nobody ever went to trial. So um, wow. we relocated. I put my life back together. I still consult with the bureau, I, you know, not as an employee with them, but I, I did for a while teach classes and teach to trade craft. And now I do uh, mental health for first responders. I, I, I create different because I have all of these skills and the skill sets and the training ability. So that's what I do now. I go around the world. I literally travel around the globe and, and teaching different techniques or different wow. ways to, for guys to keep their mental health. That I would, was my biggest thing. That's, you know, the PTSD that I suffered was tremendous. Wow. I would live in an igloo and I wouldn't tell anybody what no, I'm doing. I would yes. never go anywhere, never Just, travel anywhere honestly, ever again. And here you are, you're, you're giving back in a way. Yeah. And I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I appreciate it. But you can't, you know, I'm a guy where you put me someplace. It's like my blue heaven. You know, I have the accent. People go, oh, you're from New York. No, what made you think that? You know, <laughs> anywhere I go, I have that thing on me. I can't wash it off. Which is um, I, I wear it pr- proudly. I wear it. Yeah. So, it, it just it yeah. just occurred to me that you were married and you said your wife is also in law enforcement. So surely she would have basically had an idea of what's going on. But I think to really get in there and be authentic and believable as an undercover, one of the things that it seems like all of the guys on this show had was a guma. Right. Did you have so to? I didn't have a guma. I didn't have a guma. I, I would get tutored a brain from my wife if she found out I had a guma. Mm. I, I so, was going to say, mm-hmm. I mean, like it was a life that was basically lived in strip clubs and, and a fancy, lavish lifestyle. And you didn't want to bring your real life wife into this. So I just wondered, did you have to have something there to continue on with the character that you were playing? Well, I did. And it's not giving up any tradecraft. I can tell you right now, a lot of guys bring girlfriends in certified undercovers or, you know, over the career, state level, local, federal, whatever it is. They have brought girls in to be their girlfriend. Me, uh, I had a girlfriend through my whole career. I live in, girlfriend, and Charlie spoke with her, but never spoke. He spoke through me over the phone. So I would walk in and I would do different things to make him think that I was being yelled at like a real guy does. Charlie, I got to go. She's yelling at me. The bachelor's on and I'm too loud. I'm in a New York apartment. She's screaming. Oh, my God. She's going to kill you. Tell her her I said hello. Tell her I said hello. Hey, Charlie said hello. All right, Charlie, she said goodnight. So that was because I was immature on the cover and chose to, to not ha- have a girlfriend, but not have a girlfriend. You know, right. you might meet her on my screen on my phone or something like that. She might be on my screensaver or something. And, but I never, I, I portrayed myself. Guys would ask me, don't worry about what I do. Listen, we making money together. That's all you need to know about me. You don't need to meet my gumad. You don't need to meet me. I always made it. Charlie's wife thought I had gumads out in, in Las Vegas because every, I went out there a lot. So when I went there, they were like, why are you staying on the strip? Come and stay, you know, come and stay at the house. We have all these bedrooms. And, and I did. I lived like family with these people. And uh, I was like, no, no, Patty, I'm good. Leave the, leave the kid alone. He wants to go out with the girls, you know. So she would abuse me. Oh, wow. That's, and yelled certain that's... profanities at me. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. I, you know, I, I honestly could talk to you for hours because yeah. I'm fascinated by this. But I think oh, what thanks. I'll do instead is I'm going to pick up the book, and I encourage everyone else to do that as well. It's called Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. Now, this book came out in June, right? Correct. What are your sales like? And, and what kind of feedback are you getting from people who wrote it? And are you able to even see the feedback, or are you too protected right now? <laughs> I got to be honest with you guys. I, I don't care. <laughs> Really? Um, I didn't do it. To, yeah, I didn't do it to make money. I did it because somebody, my, my co-author, Doug Schofield, you know, he had asked me 
if I wanted to write a book. And I said, no, I'm not narcissistic. I don't have any interest in it. And then my, my federal, the FBI psychologist, when I used to go for checkups from the neck up, um, they say, wow, you have some career. You're going to write a book, right? You're going to do this. You're going to do a movie. No, I'm not narcissistic. But what I found was one good counselor said to me, start a journal. I was like, what am I, a 13-year-old girl? I'm going to start a journal? Really? But I did it for therapeutic reasons. And when I met my co-author, Doug, um, he asked me, and I said, I tell you what, I promise you, if I ever write a book, you'll be a guy to call. And then one day I had these subject, five, three subject notebooks, a stack of them, and I said, here, you want to take a look? And he's like, the book is done. It's here. It's all here. Let's just do it. I think it would be fascinating to read your journal. And I imagine like when you first started doing it, you probably resisted it a bit. And the entries are more like, hey, dear diary, this is bullshit. Hey, scumbag. No, nothing like that. But there are a lot of raw feelings in there. So, yeah, I look back at it and read it. And hopefully it it was for healing purposes. And And getting back to it, that's what the book was. I wanted the book to be something where people understood the sacrifices that undercovers make. Not just me. I'm not. I'm one of many. I tell people. You know, there's guys and girls out there doing this every day. You know, we're just the guys who got notarized for it because we went so far into it. That's very rare to go this deep like we did. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, to use it as a platform to help other and to help families get through it, maybe that's the purpose. So I would hope that my book sales are good. I hope that people are enjoying it. I, I did write it to be a fast read, so I'm, I'm hoping that people are enjoying it and. And they continue to do so. I hope to get it far enough where I could do a second edition and put more information in because they did cut the hell out of it. Yeah, I hope oh, so yeah. too. I, I, well, yeah. Fuck, I am so excited. I'm literally going today to get <laughs> this book. Uh, all right, Giovanni Rocco is the co-author of Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. Pick it up, everybody. It sounds absolutely riveting. Uh, Giovanni, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate you, bud. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Have a great one. Be, okay, take be care. Safe. Can I just go on record to say um, I don't believe Holy him? Holy fuck! I just want to say I don't believe him. What, what just I, happened? I, I, yeah, I mean, it was. It seemed like the whole thing was uh, uh, made up. Uh, we didn't hear anything that he said, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's just no it. No idea. No. 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 <laughs> Way to make sure we don't get implicated in anything. Real smooth. Good. Oh my gosh! You Isn't know, that fascinating? I didn't. Um, I didn't go into de- at any detail, but my uncle is actually was undercover for many, many, many years, and his stories are outrageous. Nothing like this, of course. Like this yeah. is next level, and he's right; it is rare because I've had many conversations with my uncle about undercover and some of the shit that he's seen and done and had to pretend to be. And it's been close to us to the point where he's bumped into people he knows, and that is a that is a kind of a very scary moment. But it's not like mob bait. Can I say the word? It's Don't not- say that. Don't no, say that's, fucking oh. mob. Rude. I was the one that was the most nervous for this interview and now I find myself needing to know way more information. I'm really, I'm actually going to pick up this book 100%. Yeah, this is, um, it, the thing that sticks out to me the most out of all of this is how accurate the shows and movies have been. Yeah. Like, if he can say, yeah, what we saw in The Sopranos is, is what happened. Yeah. That to me is like, really? So when I watch The Wire, it's legit. Uh, you know, I mean, there's some sensationalism that goes into it and storytelling, obviously, but the fact that this is real life stuff is it's riveting to me. I'm, I'm absolutely totally in on this. Like I'm, I'm blown away by the information we just got. All right, guys, we got to wrap it up. It's been a long one today, so I don't even have time to stick it or to, to wrap this one up fully. So I'll just say the reason women are cold is evolutionary. (laughs) It's because (laughs) Before we were civilized, not that we are now, but before we were civilized, it wasn't always beneficial for male primates to stick around and help with the kids. So the males would eat all the food and be too aggressive. 
So even just hanging out in the shade uh, was good for them, while females preferred the sunny spots, and that was the benefit. The moral of the story is women are cold, men are warm usually, and that's why they hang on to you like a blanket in the wintertime. We because were bred we, this way. We eat all the food and we lay in the you shade. You guys are too aggressive. You, I love that. You're too aggressive and too loud around, uh, around <laughs> children and women. You must go into the shade, into your shady cave. By the way, I wonder how many people were like really intrigued by this cold, cold women story at the beginning of the interview, and then like they were listening through the whole interview, going, "Come on, I want to know why women are cold." Or they're doing the fi- <laughs> the fifteen second skip. He's still talking about the Sopranos. <laughs> Death, and then my head almost blew off, and then and then yeah. just keeps skipping. Why are women cold? <laughs> <laughs> So if that's you that stuck around just for that, you're welcome. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a fun interview. Uh, Dave, uh, happy belated birthday. It was your birthday earlier this week. Thank you very much. How was the the, uh, birthday dinner? Good? Yeah, great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Love it. Did you get an asshole car, by the way? Is that what you rolled up in today? Oh, you saw that, did you? I did. He scanned his QR code. Uh, Yeah, yeah. there's There's a fancy car that I brought to work today. And did you get a raise or what the fuck happened there? This is my wife's car. Uh, My wife's been working her butt off and she's had a goal for a long time uh, and she achieved her goal and she has now uh, purchased herself a Mercedes Benz. So Uh I brought it to work this morning and uh, it's amazing. I didn't need to use the signal once the entire time (laughs) on the way to work. You don't need to in a nice car. No, not at all. Let me guess. You're across like three parking spaces out there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's no one parking near me. (laughs) I parked across the parking spots. It's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) Parallel parking and normal parking spots. That's what I did today. Uh, Have a happy Thanksgiving, guys. We will have a brand new episode of After 9 coming out on Tuesday. Be safe. Please plan ahead. Don't drink and drive. I saw that Twitter is testing out some new prompts that will warn you before you jump into a potential fight or argument. (laughs) Yeah. To avoid fighting, you just click the prompt that says, log off forever. Yeah, uh, that's right. Twitter prompts you with warnings like, that might be offensive, while Facebook prompts you with warnings like, that might not be offensive enough. Universal Studios in Orlando has announced that the Shrek 4D simulator show will close next year because it turns out nobody actually wanted to smell Shrek. In a new interview, singer Megan Trainer said she and her husband have two toilets next to each other in their bathroom so they can spend more time together. In case you're wondering why there was no stars, they're just like us section this week. The After 9 podcast is powered by Tony Johal, broker at REMAX Twin City. Your home sold, guaranteed, or he'll buy it.